This is Muslim in Plain Sight. I'm Anissa Khalifa. And I'm Khadija Khalil. Join us as we look back at 20 years of the war on terror and how our world changed as we came of age. Hi and welcome, I'm Khadija. In this episode, we were thrilled to sit down with Jahana Bouya, senior tech reporter and editor at The Guardian. Jahana is a born and raised New Yorker now residing in San Francisco. She's been a journalist since 2013 and has previously worked at the Los Angeles Times, Recode, BuzzFeed News and Politico. Jahana talks about growing up in New York after 9-11 and how the current state of surveillance of marginalised communities has evolved over the last 20 years. She shares her personal experiences as a hijab-wearing Muslim woman in newsrooms and other places throughout her career, how she got into the very specific field of tech accountability, and what it's like to see her work result in real-world change. And just a small note to say that we recorded this interview back in November, so bear that in mind when we make time references. New episodes of the podcast come out on Mondays every other week. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate to us by clicking the link in the description. And we'd love if you took a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, as it helps more people to find the show. You can also share your favourite episodes on social media and with your friends and family. And now let's sit down with Johanna for a confidential chat that everyone, friends, enemies or frenemies, can listen in on. Assalamu alaikum. I'm Anissa. Assalamu alaikum. I'm Khadija. And today we are delighted to welcome senior tech accountability reporter and editor at The Guardian, Jahana Bouya. Assalamu alaikum, Jahana. Alaikum salam. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for I'm coming. I'm so excited to have you. <laughs> so, you know, we've been talking to, um, we've talked to a few American Muslims already, um, but we haven't talked to anyone that grew up in New York mm. yet. And the first thing that we always ask our guests is, who were you on September 10th? 2001. <laughs> yeah, of, of 2001. And like, what were you, what's like your story before this other story kind of came and overshadowed everything else? Yeah, I was in fifth grade. So I was like, I had oh. like very little semblance of a idea of what my self was. Like, I don't, I really did not fully understand myself. So I think... It's funny to think back like in pre 9-11 days and I'm just like, I was a child. So um, mm. my conception of who I was, of my faith was very much mirrored or shaped by my family and like, you know, just very immature and premature like thoughts about what all those things are. Um, that being said, I think the, the big thing that was happening for me was that my family and I had just moved from Queens to Long Island. Um, and neither of you from New York, so that means nothing to you, but Queens. I was going to say, as a non-New Yorker, can you explain what that means? <laughs> yeah. So Queens is one of the largest boroughs in um, New York, and it's one of the most diverse. Um, and it's often where a lot of immigrants, particularly, well, immigrants of all kinds kind of end up in Queens first. Um, and so my family, I lived in a part of Queens called Ozone Park. And, you know, on my block, there were people of like every different ethnicity. And mm. so... It was really interesting, and I've said this before on, like, different podcasts and stuff, but I never really thought of myself as, like, Asian or, or sorry, I never really thought of myself as brown. I thought of myself as half Bangladeshi, half Filipina, um, which is my ethnicity, um, and uh, I think a lot of that is because everyone else was some shade of brown or black, and we all really identified closely with our ethnicity and weren't sort of pigeonholed into this larger category of mm-hmm. brown, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so then we moved to Long Island, which is a suburb of New York. Or it, I mean, Long Island is like an entire island, and so it's technically the suburbs. Um, a little bit of the history of Long Island is that Robert Moses, this architect of New York City, um, created Long Island as a safe haven for rich white folk and in order to prevent people from coming and going who were lower income he actually for example created underpasses that were 
too low for buses to get through. And then he also was super wow. against, yeah. So he was super against public transit, um, connecting Long Island to any of the other boroughs, including Manhattan. And so when I moved there, um, obviously it had been years since then. However, a lot of that systemic racism kind of like permeates a lot of it. And where the town that we lived in was largely people who like grew up in that town and they were mostly white. Um, and now, I mean, it's been 20 years or something like that. Um, but now it's like a very brown neighborhood, <laughs> which is really funny. But when we reverse gentrification, oh yeah, and I like partly my my dad is to blame for this, but um, but like when we moved there, like we were gen- genuinely like one of the few brown people who lived there. Um, and so the other thing that was happening was that um, because I was starting a new school. I knew that I wanted to wear hijab eventually. So I thought it would be easier for me to start at the beginning. Mm. So we moved there when I was in fourth grade. Um, I had just started wearing hijab. Like in fourth grade, I like didn't think much of it. It just, I was just like, you know, I'm going to wear hijab and it's going to be fine. Um, I think part of that was like coming from Queens and and like, you know, being around people who were extremely uh, or who are from a diverse set of backgrounds. So when 9-11 happened, it had been a year and a half since I started wearing hijab. I think there was probably a chance that there was like discrimination and racism happening or people saying and doing things about my hijab that I like just didn't notice prior to that um, because Long Island is an extremely racist place. But it wasn't until 9-11 that I like, there was like explicit outward hatred pointed toward me. Um, and I know this is not part of this question, but like, I think it was like a few months after 9-11 where um, I was walking home from school and um, I live across, I live, I live like near a railroad station or railroad track. Um, and I'm just like walking home and I see like out of the corner of my eye across the railroad, a woman or just a car, right? Like a car stopping abruptly and then making a really fast U-turn and then crossing the railroad and pulling up next to me. Mm. And it was this woman with her two children in the back and she just yells, take that off. And then turned back around and like went back to what she was doing. (laughs) Just like went went back to like her day. And you were like 10 at this time? Yeah, like how old are you in fifth grade? I don't remember, like 10 or 11. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I'm just like, I don't know what's happening and like what's funny is that like this was the most one of the more traumatic things that have happened to me in my childhood where but like in Queens I used to get into like fights like I literally mm-hmm. there would be like the mm-hmm. the kids from the next block would come like try to fight the kids from my block and I'd have to like <laughs> go ride my bike to get all the older brothers and sisters to come save <laughs> us and like and like that to me was like that felt like totally normal like it didn't feel traumatic it just kind mm-hmm. of felt I, There's I, something I don't equal in it, right? Yeah. Whereas this is like someone with their children in the back mm-hmm. of the car or like, was it like yelling at me? So, um, yeah, I think if there was racism and discrimination that I faced when I had moved to Long Island, I had, I'd become like sort of like awakened to it post 9-11. Mm-hmm. But what's funny is like the day of 9-11, and, you know, the other thing about being in New York and particularly being on Long Island is a lot of the folks, um, a lot of people who I went to school with, like their fathers and mothers were either NYPD officers or worked at the fire department in New York. Um, so it was like something that really hit home with people. Like literally the day that they announced, like the day I remember like our teacher shutting the TV off and being like, okay, we have to like go downstairs for an assembly and um, specific children being pulled out of class and like crying. Oh so cause it's like a very close to home in a lot of ways and so in my mind as that was happening I'm like you know I was horrified and I was sad and I was you know really scared and I that day felt like I was a part of this like grief and mourning but it wasn't until we were all sent home that like my dad was like and I didn't understand it still like my dad was like wondering if I should my myself and my cousin who also wears hijab who who was in high school at the time should stay home from school the next day and I like didn't understand why we would do that which is like I think I, mean, I very quickly figured it out um but it's like just to, goes to show like how little I was thinking about being 
different. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas it's like, I know, I mean, there was, I, my family literally got like a picture of a Quran um, with a knife through it faxed to them when I was like wow. five or six, because my dad is like a big part of the Muslim community here or here, New York. And so, like, I know that we faced discrimination prior to that. It just wasn't something that I, as a kid, who, like, felt very much a part of the fabric of New York and, like, didn't feel... I felt different in the same way that everyone else was different. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't, like, feel like such a big part of my life at that point. Even mm-hmm. though, of course, it was there. I mean, like, it was, it was it's constant and it was everywhere. But I don't know. It just, like, wasn't something that I thought of. Um, and it, I think post 9-11, being in a place where it was, like not super diverse and be yeah I think that was when like I very quickly realized that I wasn't a part I actually wasn't a part of that national grieving like I was being excluded from it I was the I was the target you didn't get to be part of that yeah yeah like it's so funny how much being on Long Island or just like in the country at that time as a young person um how much of that like patriotism that like every single person company like government everything was like laying on really thick of course like with like good reason but like even having faced the things that I'd faced and like coming around to realizing that I was being sort of like targeted by this or I'm being excluded from this like there was one point I just felt I I was like so brainwashed like there was one point there my friend and I my friend was a, a Korean woman we stood outside I think my house with signs that were like this is so embarrassing to say, but like honk if you love America or something like that. Mm. And like people were so for it and honking and whatever. And I think like looking back at it now, I'm just like, it seemed like I feel like as a kid, I was trying so hard to like be included in that, like just to let people know that I am grieving too, you know, Mm. like I do love this country and all of that. I mean, obviously as an adult now, I'm just like, I don't really feel the need to like prove that I love this country. And I don't think it's like, should be like a, a barometer for my existence here but but so many of us at that time who had grown up in this sort of assimilationist framework like especially I think a lot of our like immigrant Muslim communities Mm -hmm. I include myself in that like you know we didn't have a good sense necessarily of the history of racism in this country we had come and been sold this narrative of like you have to integrate into the white mainstream culture that's what American culture is and so there was a lot of that like uh, do you remember when Andrew Yang wrote that like article about how Asian Americans should do more to make themselves valuable to the nation yeah. so that people won't be yeah. racist against them during the pandemic when everyone was like anti-Asian racism is getting really out of hand. And I was like, yeah. dude, we tried that. It doesn't work, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And in fact, like we are continuing to be like a fabric in the backbone of like society mm-hmm. in America, right? Like it's not as if just look around, like it's like, elderly Asian people who should have been retired by now are still doing the labor and the work that people, Mm -hmm. other people don't want to do. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So it's not that we're not doing that. It's just like this sort of, yeah, it's that immigrant narrative of like, you have to be valuable. You have to do something valuable to the country in order for you to be recognized as a human being. Or you have to you know, with earn human rights. your human rights. Yeah. Yes. It's kind of the same thing when people are like, oh, here are these like really amazing immigrants and like they'll point to Google founders and like, you know, just a bunch of different like tech CEOs and executives. And, and they're like, look at these amazing immigrants. And in their mind, they're you know, doing a service to immigrants and they're like, look how great they are. Or like, look at these people who used to be refugees, um, often in response to like racism or discrimination against immigrants. And it's like, what you're saying is in order to be respected, you have to meet this bar. Like you have to be the founder of Google. And I'm just like, I should be able to just like be the biggest lazy like piece of you know trash and still be like treated like a human exactly. being you know like I shouldn't have to do anything to prove my humanity yeah yeah and it's particularly egregious when these are refugees from wars that America has started right and you're like oh but these refugees they contribute so much to our economy I'm like come on now <laughs> you know, I find it really interesting that you mentioned that specifically as a New Yorker, how you felt like part of the fabric of New York, because I feel like Londoners can relate to that a lot, because in the same way that New York is super diverse and, you know, just you're living shoulder to shoulder with such different people, it's the same in London, that mm. that community is so rich and so mixed and that you never feel out of place until 
this kind of jarring destabilizing event happens that sort of knocks you into a new position where you are then forced to confront the fact that actually you aren't accepted in the same way that perhaps everyone else is. Mm. Yeah, no, totally. And I, and I think it's, it's like, I, I keep reiterating this, like, I'm sure that I was being discriminated against and it just was like in my Mm. child, like mind and like the rose colored lenses that I was looking at the world through. I was like, Oh yeah. Like, I am one of them or I wasn't I wasn't being discriminated in a way that was different than like any of my friends were being discriminated against and none of us were like the same ethnicity so I was like oh yeah this is just like how it is. (laughs) So speaking of that rich community and I know you're mindful because you've spoken about it in other places you're mindful of how you use the phrase Muslim community but what Mm -hmm. kind of Muslim community did you experience growing up and how was your community as a whole impacted by 9-11? Yeah, so in Queens, um, there was like quite a large Muslim community and there's, I mean, it's a growing community there. Um, that being said, I think at that point in our lives, we were much more engaged with like the Bangladeshi community. Like my dad was going to like different massages and stuff like that, but he was, I, we were, I went to Sunday school and I hated it, you know, like I, and I like begged my dad to not let me go there anymore. Um, <laughs> Sounds familiar. Cause it was like, <laughs> yeah. it was like a very much like a, yeah, it was like a punishment type of Sunday school. Oh dear. Like, the wooden okay. spoons yeah. wrapping your knuckles. I still oh. have yeah Um, wow yeah so anyway like I I, we weren't super engaged with it at that point um and I think part of it is like you know both my parents are trying to my mom is not Bangladeshi but like in terms of like trying to find community that like the 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 first way into like finding a community in New York for my dad was like establishing himself within the Bangladeshi community rather than the Muslim community I mean, most of the Bangladeshis we were, we were like with were Muslim, but it wasn't like in the same sense that I have had a Muslim community later on. Um, and then on the island, funnily enough, now we have like this massive, massive Muslim community. And it's like a community that my dad helped build. And so when we first moved there, um, we, there was like no masjid and there was no place to do any congregational prayer except for this the basement of a grocery store owned by this Pakistani man. And so like the first few months that we lived there, my dad and like five other men would just like pray in this basement. Wow. Um, they would do Juma, they would, they would do all of that. And then ultimately they started like, a lot of people started hearing about it. They started meeting other people in the neighborhood. Um, and they eventually were like, oh, there's enough people here where we can actually start like a, a, a masjid. Um, and so they found this like used car place that was for sale. And so um, they raised some money and bought that and like renovated it. And it was like this really beautiful masjid. But, I mean, it was small, but it was like ours, yeah. you know, like we like made it like our home. And over time, more and more Muslims came. Mm. And so... Um, there's a point to the story, but, um, they, we eventually had so many people that they had to like, we were doing like on Friday prayers, like in addition to the masjid, they had to rent a banquet hall in order to like accommodate everyone who was coming. Um, and then eventually they were like, we just need to raise money to like renovate this masjid. It ultimately took about 15 years to build and renovate that masjid because even though we had the funds for it throughout the whole process, neighbors and other people would constantly complain about things and like report the construction to the city mm-hmm. to be like, oh, this is like out of code. This is out of code. And it wasn't. And it, even if it wasn't, the process itself to like prove that it wasn't mm-hmm. was extremely long. And every time that happened, you would have to stop construction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I as a reporter, I have to say, like, I don't have like verifiable proof that this was like, you know, motivated by racism and, or discrimination. Um, but, you know, it was the same people even the police or the people that the the leadership board um, was dealing with with the city like we're like we don't know why we keep getting called back here um so i mean whether or not this would have happened if 9-11 didn't happen is not something that i i know obviously but um it was like our i think our neighborhood much like a lot of neighborhoods um were having sort of like that backlash to increased diversity and it's very common story right that anytime a muslim community tries to build a mosque in um it doesn't necessarily have to be a small town that doesn't have a lot of muslims often you know i mean like look what happened with the so-called ground zero mosque which um 
yeah, might ask you about that as well. But like, <laughs> it's it's like this constant campaign of harassment sometimes where people are just like, no, we don't want this in our neighborhood. No. Mm-hmm. And then they just like continuously put roadblocks in front yeah. of these projects. And people are like, we just want yeah. a community center where we can pray. Um, but the hatred is just so visceral in a lot of these cases. I'm not saying that's what it was mm-hmm. in your case, but I mean, you I know, think I've like based on just it. like, yeah, just like if I, as a civilian, like I was like, that's what it seemed like, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and like, we would go to great lengths to make sure that we were like super cooperative, cooperative in the community, that we were giving back to the community, that we were like really, you know, a productive and beneficial part of the community. It's like working twice as hard to get half as far in a, on a larger Mm -hmm. scale. Right. Totally. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean that that was the kind of the Muslim community that I ended up growing up in because I, I I don't live there anymore. I live in San Francisco, but um, I think the other thing that was different about it um, from what I grew up in is that it's the masjid is very deliberate about making sure that it, it's not like a single ethnic group because a lot of masjids will like only be a Pakistani masjid or only be a Bangladeshi masjid and they only talk. Oh yeah, and you then know, they're accused like of the, ghettoization. Yeah. Yeah. And so like sometimes like it's like, you know, for my husband um, is a white man and he is a convert. Um, and so like even in San Francisco, I mean, there there's quite a large Muslim community in the broader Bay Area. But in San Francisco, the city itself, it's kind of hard to come by. And it took us a very long time to find a masjid that didn't give just an Arabic khutbah. Like we, you know. Oh, wow. Even really? in San Francisco. That's yeah. surprising. That is yeah. surprising. So, I mean, it's a, a very large Arab immigrant community here. And I think that's part of it. But it took us some time. And um, or they did they did, would do an English translation, but it was like a five minute translation while the khutbah <laughs> was like 20 minutes. And mm. I'm like, I don't. Yeah, like I was born Muslim and I don't understand what he's saying. Like, I'm, like I can pick up little things here and there. I'm like that bullet point summary is not helpful for me. Mm. Yeah, even if it is your own, I mean, I'm Pakistani American, mm-hmm. so I I guess I could go to the Pakistani masjid that's five minutes down the road, but we don't really go to that one. We would rather like there's a larger masjid in Raleigh, um, and that's the one that kind of feels like home to us, and that one is not really dominated by one ethnic group in the sense that maybe it is like functionally dominated by certain ethnic groups, like numbers wise. Um, And in terms of like who gets to be in leadership positions somewhat, I mean, nothing's perfect, but they've made a concerted effort to be multicultural in a way that like a lot of other masjids just don't Mm. bother to. And they're very... Uh, yeah. I say this as someone who has participated in IAL's community from London, <laughs> which is something I find so wonderful. To attend our Saturday I classes. I still do. Um, <laughs> it's very special. I mean, we're very blessed in our leadership. But yeah, like I, I feel uncomfortable when I go to a Pakistani masjid. And I'm Pakistani American. Yeah. So I, in my opinion, it doesn't it contribute to like the healthiest dynamic of like an American Muslim community that we can have. So... Although I do want to qualify that by also adding that there was a time where it was a single ethnic by necessity. Mm-hmm. It just, it, that's all you had. And so it's part of the evolution of how the masjid communities have been growing over the years that, that we're now able to become more inclusive and consider becoming inclusive. And like, it's a generational thing. It's an immigrant thing. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons why For sure. you would have had a Bengali masjid yeah. or you would have had like a Pakistani masjid or the, um, you know, Somali masjid. But the intermingling of the communities takes time as well. And that comes totally. from like building trust between communities as well. So those yeah, are all definitely. things that come yeah. because of concerted efforts between Muslims to to build those community bonds with each other. Yeah. And it's challenging. Not to like derail this, I will be very <laughs> brief. <laughs> but it's challenging because, you know, if you have, you know, so my masjid that we'll just call it IAR, it's very diverse. We have like 80 to 90 different sort of ethnic language groups. But that also means that when I'm working in a coalition with like, you know, we have this sort of local interfaith coalition where we work on things like affordable housing and stuff with our neighbors Mm -hmm. trying to advocate, you know, with the county and the city and stuff. And it's very easy for like these churches that are in these like monolithic neighborhoods when it comes to like race and, you know, socioeconomic status and language to just like all get together on one topic and be like, yes. And here we have like 30 volunteers. Meanwhile, I'm like trying to explain what we're doing (laughs) to our very diverse community. Mm -hmm. And 
they would probably be in support of it. But then like there's also like those uncles who are like, um, I don't vote. <laughs> or there's people who are like, this is too political. What yeah. if we get in trouble? So it is. It is challenging to be in community together like and that. And this also yeah. reminds me of something one of our previous guests said, Jasmine, who was talking about how in student government, when she, she was involved in her university MSA, which we call an ISOC here, that having that diversity of positionality allows you as a collective to come to more balanced decisions. So we are derailing, but it's mm. interesting, I guess. No, it's super interesting. Yeah. And I should say, I mean, the reason when when we were like in Queens, I mean, we went to Bangladeshi Mosque for that reason, right? Like my dad that was his community like that was his and it's your language as well it's your language yeah. and I mean he my dad speaks fluent English and, and has for for the vast majority of his life so language wouldn't have been an issue but it really was that he knew one other person when he moved to New York and so mm. like it was like being able to find that Bangladeshi community was a big deal um so yeah I mean totally makes sense and for a lot of reasons um and I think to this day is still like something that was a lot of people who are of that ethnicity probably appreciate right like, they feel home the issue is when then it's like okay well now are you excluding other members of the community like if there is someone who's interested in islam and the only mushes around them are like they speak you know a very like one of a few languages like what how do they then connect and engage with the community right so we've been kind of talking about this from a community perspective but how do you describe or or view Muslim identity? And I know you said you were really young when 9-11 happened, but did you feel solid in your Muslim identity at that time? And if so, did that change or did 9-11 sort of play a large role in the formation of, of that identity? Like for some people, maybe it drew them closer or maybe pulled them away. How What was your experience like? I was super young, um, and so I guess, like, before that, I didn't really think too much about it. Like, it was like I was going to wear hijab because most of my family wore hijab, um, and I am Muslim because I was raised Muslim, and I pray five times a day because my parents told me to pray five times a day. Um, I do think it was after 9-11 where, and I, part of this is just, like, you know, generational trauma and, like, being um, <laughs> from background where it's, like, they're, the countries that they're from are colonized and like there's genocide mm -hmm. and all of that and so I think like having my religious identity challenged made me want to like dig my heels into it more which is like not a great reason to like be better at your religion but um I, I definitely extremely think extremely relatable though <laughs> yeah. I definitely relate to that <laughs> yeah and so I I think like I definitely did um it wasn't even that I like got more religious it was that I was like I, this is something I need to defend. Um, mm. And I, I'm not like a confrontational person, but I do like, I'm very good at conflict, I think. <laughs> like I'm very good at winning it. Um, nice. And I think part of it is like, there's just like this built-in resiliency, right? Like you like being the child of two immigrants, like seeing what they face, you know? And, and like, whether I want to or not, like, just like that Bangladeshi anger is built in as well. <laughs> and like, they're angry for a reason, right? Like my dad literally was like, a 13 year old when the Pakistani army came to their home and tried to like they like ransacked their home and like tried to like oh you know attack my grandma and whatever so it's like I get why you're angry like it totally makes sense um unfortunately that just means like there's it's like really has like seeped into like all of the rest of us as well but that anger for me like maybe not so much at that point but the anger for me now is much more like I am able to direct it in the right places I think one my identity has like since gone from like defending Islam to just like being like freely and openly myself um, because I'm like, I don't need to defend myself and I like mm -hmm. shouldn't have to mm -hmm. defend my religion or my identity or my choices to people who one, don't want to hear me or like don't want to listen to me um, or two, people who like, I mean, even Muslims do this and we kind of talked about this earlier too, people who like refuse to acknowledge that we've already like denounced terrorism yeah. so many times you know and it's <laughs> yeah. like that's not mine like I don't own right. terrorism like why should I have to speak against it or speak for it and it's something that I even like my dad who's like you know a, a, a member of the leadership board of this Muslim community like for a very long time anytime there was like any kind of terrorist attack they would have like he would rush to put out a statement mm -hmm. and I'm like why mm -hmm. like why acknowledge it or why take ownership of that as if it's something that's ours and something that's uniquely ours I do not see why people denounce 
dancing like they're domestic terrorists. Um, and so, you know, I've, I feel like a lot of my Muslim identity is like really very shaped in like feeling like I had to defend it from, to now just feeling like being myself is in and of itself like an act of resistance. Like wearing hijab is in and of itself an act of resistance. I mean, frankly, like my, I like have gotten, I've always been like, moderately practicing um hijab is something that was really important to me but i've always like explored like my relationship with it and like different interpretations of it um and i'm definitely not like the best muslim ever who is (laughs) right um yes (laughs) who even defines what that means (laughs) yeah and i think i think though like part of i've gotten a little bit more um I've got, I've, I spent a lot more time studying and trying to understand how I, my relationship to different aspects of Islam as I've like helped my husband like understand Islam. And like, um, I think that's been, that is sort of like a funny new chapter of my Muslim identity where I'm like, I've always sort of like had, I felt like I had like a pretty good understanding of theology and why I do the things that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had to like reinterrogate a lot of things, um, which has been like actually really helpful in sort of solidifying my faith which is it's been it's kind of nice to have as like a 30 year old I'm like who knew this could happen like this yeah. late in my life. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that and this is something Anissa and I have spoken about in previous episodes about how there is that point like I think 9-11 or no 9-11 where as a Muslim living in a majority non-Muslim space you are constantly just like by existing you're having to challenge your Islam you're having to mm-hmm interrogate why you do all of those things at every point and every day you're testing your beliefs against the world that you live in and every day those beliefs you know they either win or they don't and like alhamdulillah Mm -hmm. they've won so far and inshallah Mm -hmm. may it continue to but of course it doesn't for everyone because you know all muslims are going through this and there are definitely people who move away from islam through that interrogation because when those beliefs that they've inherited or the cultural practices or the family traditions that they've inherited in their households don't hold up to what they know and believe about the world, then you can lose that or you can give it up because you just don't believe in it. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's, it is, it is really interesting. And I, and I, and I think that like, to be fair, like faith is like deeply personal and it is like something that is supposed to be fluid, right? Like it's acknowledged Mm -hmm. in Islam that there's going to be ebbs and flows of our faith and I think everyone should be given the room and the time and the space to be able to do that on their own terms um but I do think yeah like for sure like at every point it's being challenged right and Mm -hmm. I think now that I have what's funny like obviously my mom is a is also a revert and she her family is um is all catholic but growing up I think partly because the cultural similarities between Bangladeshis and Filipinos as well as like their deeply religious catholic selves Mm -hmm. and my deeply muslim like Bangladeshi family like it actually is like much more similar than different so I like didn't really feel like I was having to be what I, I didn't really feel like I was being challenged or I didn't feel like I had to justify like different practices of my faith I think now that I'm married into a white family like it's a little bit different and you know this family Holy is like game. yeah like they're they're <laughs> largely progressive but like they're they're from the midwest um I think their liberalism kind of like starts and ends at a certain point. Um, and they are from like a fairly like white suburb of Minnesota. Um, and I think as a result of like their lack of like engagement with anyone who really is like not a white person, um, it does feel a little bit more like I do have to like justify to them why I do the things that I do. And I tell my therapist all the time, like, for better or for worse, it's just making me do my religion even harder. <laughs> and, like, it kind of <laughs> does feel like a little bit of a reversion back to, like, okay, defense, resiliency, and, and whatever. But, and, you know, they're, like, lovely humans who have been really accepting and warm. But it's still, like, it's still an education where it doesn't – because I think – having both cultural differences and religious differences and also just like being from different parts of the country where I'm like, I'm just used to seeing and meeting all types of people. Um, I think all of that like really has shaped the way that I think about my identity as a Muslim. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to hear you say this as well, because like I've heard this from my parents, uh, you know, because so they're both ethnically Pakistani, but my mom grew up, you know, um, she was born in Kenya and uh, then she lived in England and Canada for most of her mm-hmm. life. Um, and so she didn't actually 
speak Urdu before she married my dad. She learned that after she got married. Mm-hmm. My dad grew up in Lahore. That was his culture that he was brought up in. And they met in when they were in university. And both of them kind of had to go through that process of who, like, what is Islam to me? Mm-hmm. And do I really believe this for myself? I and mean, my mom said that she did that as a teenager because she was in a community that was so diverse and she had her best friends were like Egyptian and South African and, uh, you know, Somali and Sudanese. And so like she had all these different people and all even like the teachers that they had at that time were like Jamal Badawi and mm-hmm. some other really like giants, you know, mm-hmm. of that time, mashallah. It was... It wasn't like, here's the received culture I received from my parents, and I'm just going to practice exactly the way they did. She was seeing that everyone was practicing Islam in different ways mm-hmm. in the households of her friends. Um, and so her and her friends were like, okay, well, we're going to figure out what it says in the books. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, like, what is the source? And it was the same thing for my dad, where he was coming from a totally Muslim culture to a non-Muslim culture where he was like, well, instead of just like passively sort of, you know, absorbing Islam, it was it was like, okay, this is actually something important to me. And if I want to hold on to it, I'm going to have to make a lot more effort yeah. here. And so that kind of was them having to, like you said, reinterrogate and do all of that. Yeah. And so then when we were growing up, my parents also told us, like, you have to choose mm-hmm. this for yourself. Yeah. You can't just Which is so take it beautiful. because we're telling yeah, you. Yeah, that's so great that they, they presented to you that way. I think I was lucky in that, yes, my mom was a revert and my dad pro- went through kind of the same thing that I'm going through now where he was, like, interrogating the actual reasons why he does certain things. And so I was very fortunate in that in my family, even though we definitely followed, like, my dad was still following whatever he was taught. He, like, understood what was, like, culture and what was religion and understood mm-hmm. why he was doing the things in religion. Um, and it helped so much. And I don't think that's the case, honestly, for everyone in my family. Like, they, like, are... It's a big blessing. Yeah. They're, like, taught a Bangladeshi yeah. version of Islam. And sometimes mm-hmm. I'll catch my dad and he'll be like, yeah, you're really not supposed to do this. And I'm like, is that something that you were taught? Or, like, have you, like confirmed and validated he's like i have not confirmed or validated this that's such a reporter question <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and my dad was like able to acknowledge that no in fact it's like not been validated i think like recently the, the it actually came up the last time i was in new york like a week ago um and my dad was like yeah you're really not supposed to like I think you're not supposed to like whistle at night or whatever. And I was like, do you know that for sure? He's like, I don't actually. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> so we're not just going to like repeat it. <laughs> like that's just not how it works. And I'm like, because what, it, what he says to my, my husband and my sister-in-law, who is also a revert, there's a little pattern in our family. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah. Um, but like, like what he says to them is really important, and like they, it like it matters quite a lot, not just to them, but just like large, like generally, because like they're gonna take it as gospel, because like my dad is like right. the religious authority in our family, you know. And so I'm just like, you can't just say things. And so, and and fortunately, like for the most part of my life, Alhamdulillah, like he wasn't just saying things, but. Um, I definitely got my fair share of it from other family members. So shall we shift gears a little bit and talk about what you actually do by day? So you've spoken elsewhere about how the goal of tech accountability reporting is quite literally that. Mm -hmm. It's calling big tech to account. And what your work does is that it identifies legal holes that require plugging. Is there a case in particular that stands out to you in your own research that led to a change in law? Yeah, so sometimes it's not always a legal thing. I think, like, my hope is with my reporting that we do, like, if it's some, if we're exposing something that there aren't enough regulations, um, that there is some sort of, like, ramification or impact, right? Like, that's always my goal with reporting. So, you know, right now I cover surveillance of marginalized groups. Um, prior to this, still under, like, the tech accountability umbrella, I was covering a lot of labor and tech. Um, and so this isn't necessarily like a legal, like a law, but, um, I reported at the LA times, which was where I was before at the guardian, um, that Amazon was withholding tips from their gig workers, from their delivery drivers. Um, and don't, I know people don't know that you can always tip an, an Amazon driver, but there's a, something called Amazon. No idea. Yeah. There's an Amazon flex driver who they like are the ones who deliver like groceries and things like that. So they, they're oh. able to get tips. Um, and what was happening was that Amazon was like using their tips toward their guaranteed pay. So like they would say, you're going to make $30 on this thing. And then instead of paying them the full 30 themselves out of their own pockets, they would take like the $5 tip and then only give them $25. Um, wow. So I exposed this like two, three years ago. 
I was actually like very disappointed um, when, you know, even for several months, there wasn't really a lot of movement because this was a big deal. You know, like this is like for a single person, I, I, I like was able to find out that they were potentially losing like thousands of dollars. Right. Like and there's so many delivery drivers. Um, so six months later, Amazon suddenly was like, oh, we're going to change this practice. Um, and I was like, that's so funny. And it's so weird that it's so much later than my story. Um, and then. It wasn't until the beginning of this year that the FTC announced that they had come to a settlement with Amazon for $72 billion um, over their stealing tips. And it turns out that the entire time, like immediately after my story, they like mentioned like reporting that exposed the Amazon tip. I like asked them to. I was like, can you just tell me? They didn't cite you properly, no, right? No, but they, I was like, can you, but they, they linked to an article about my article. And so. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I, was I like, don't know. I, that's not okay, but. No, yeah, it's whatever. On. But I like, I emailed them. I was like, hey, can you just like tell me like, did, is this from my article? And they're like, we can't like disclose blah, 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 whatever. But anyway, apparently like um, after my story like they started investigating this um and that's and they of course have you have to notify amazon after you start an investigation and so that kind of makes sense like explains a little bit of like why like a few months later amazon then changed their tipping policy um Mm. and then they like came to a settlement with them and um it was just last week that a lot of because i've i've been i've like my reporting has led to other settlements and oftentimes what happens with those settlements is that drivers get pennies because there's so many of them. It's a lar- It seems like a large amount, but it's like you're yeah. just distributing among a lot of people. So I thought it was going to be something like that too. But drivers started getting their money last week. There were sources of mine who reached out and were like, thank you so much for doing this. I just got like $5,000 in back pay. That's amazing. And some people have gotten yeah. like, you know, 10K plus back. Um Wow. And so I think for this year, that's like kind of the biggest impact I've had. Um, it's very frustrating that like sometimes impact takes a long time to happen. But like this is like a story that I did two, three years ago. But I'm starting to see kind of the impact of that now. Mm-hmm. On surveillance, like there's so it's just so unregulated, you know, like there really isn't enough laws and regulation. Um, but I feel like it's it's there. there's movement and there's efforts across the country to like regulate facial recognition and all of this other stuff. Um, I think like my role right now is one to like bring attention to really how surveillance disproportionately impacts black and brown folks, like LGBTQ communities, like, you know, marginalized groups generally, because I think we talk about surveillance really broadly and like the fears and the harms of it. Um, But there are very few reporters who are like deliberately just looking at marginalized groups. Um, And I think that's like, it's absolutely necessary because when you talk about surveillance broadly, there are a lot of people who are like, well, this doesn't affect me. Like why, like why, if you have nothing to hide, like why would would you care if like the police are tracking at your every movement or whatever? Um, And I think the reality is one, like, yeah, maybe you are not being surveilled today and maybe you have nothing to hide, but this is how it impacts like immigrants, for example, right? Like immigrants who are trying to get legalized through the normal, through the legal processes of naturalization are being surveilled and monitored by the government, maybe for the rest of their lives, you know, like, and showing like the real harm that's happening to black and brown folks and other marginalized groups. That's kind of just how I see my role right now. I think if my reporting helps push along regulation, that would be really, really wonderful. Um, I think the most impact I've had this year with some of my stories is that after I reported that um, this Chinese uh, camera company um, had features that would detect Uyghurs, like I got a hold of like internal documents oh, that they had Uyghur. I remember that story. Yeah, they had like Uyghur yeah. detection features. They also had race detection. Um, and they had one feature that like purportedly was able to detect Uyghurs with terrorist inclinations because apparently you can oh, tell that okay. just by looking at someone. We're doing phrenology now. <laughs> yeah. okay. Digital um, phrenology. Yeah. And so what came out of that was we, we like Reuters had reported pr- prior to that, that Amazon had a contract with this company um, for like, not for cameras, but for like, um, uh, temperature or checking scanners or whatever. And um, a bunch of senators reached out to Amazon and were like, did you realize that this company was like doing genocide or like aiding and potentially aiding in genocide um, before you contracted with them? And so there's a little bit of like congressional movement on that. But yeah, I think 
I think it's like a very hard argument to make that um, law enforcement shouldn't use surveillance um, because law enforcement are like, well, why wouldn't we use this if it helps us reduce crime? And often the answer to that is, well, it actually has not proven to help reduce crime. Um, and so you're infringing on, potentially infringing on people's free, uh, civil liberties uh, for nothing. And a lot of this doesn't require a warrant, right? They just have access to all of this. It's not like they have to have go through the regular process of a warrant where they have to prove that there's, you know, I don't know the legal term. Like probable cause. Yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. better than I do. <laughs> Am I correct in my understanding that they don't need a warrant for a lot of this stuff? Depending on what it is, yeah, they don't. Like, so um, facial recognition, there's a company called Clearview AI that literally just scrapes all your images from, like, social media and it's public, publicly available information is the source of a lot of surveillance companies and, like, social media analytics companies' um, data. They're just, like, trying to recreate your private lives um, using the publicly available information that's out there. And you'd be, like, so surprised how much is out there. Um, so I'm, I'm publishing uh, a story um, next week on um, a social media analytics company called Voyager, and we got a hold of public records uh, from, like, their, they did a trial with the LAPD. Um, and one of the things that they do is they, like, hoover up and vacuum up all your publicly available information on social media. Um, and then also they're able to do things like um, like tech companies are can be given warrants and then hand over a bunch of user data. Often they're really broad. And so like it's just like all of your user data. Um, so they'll take publicly available information, cross-reference it with any warrant, like private user data that they got from these tech companies, which could be your private messages or whatever. Um, and sometimes use some what they call an active persona, which is a fake profile, um, to like connect with people uh, that they typically oh wouldn't have access, to, you know, to their information of, like they like just private accounts. Um, and what they do with all that information is then use quote unquote artificial intelligence to like analyze it. And I say quote unquote because it's like I don't know how you're able to do this, and they have no way. They don't like say how it works, which means it probably doesn't work. Who knows? But they like analyze it to see one, how close those connections are with like all of your friends. Two, like how if you have any like indirect connections, they basically create an entire social map of your life. Like people who you probably don't even know, but if you have mutual friends with them, they'll put you on this like this this map um, in an effort to say like, oh, this is like it's basically like guilty by affiliation, which is like what some experts said to us. But they also um, try to analyze, do like sentiment analysis. So they'll like go through your posts and they're like, oh, like this might indicate Islamic fundamentalism or this might indicate like a call to action. And one of the case studies that they included was about like this shooter who attacked um, a Corpus, Corpus Christi uh, naval base or military base. Um, and um, they were like, oh, here's what our, our system would have done if we were like used to examine this person's social media. And they said that this person like had a very strong inclination toward um, fundamentalism based on his, his posts. And the things that they pointed out were one, his Instagram handle was a name that showed his Arab pride in his Arabic heritage or Arab heritage. I think they said Arabic heritage. And I was like, that's not a, a thing. Um, and two, they were like his Instagram, the people he follows on Instagram post a lot of like Islamic messages and posts. They said that he tweeted a lot about like Islam. Um, and I'm just like, this sounds like my uncle, you know, like my An uncle right. is exactly. <laughs> any average any Muslim who has some type of yeah. connection to their Muslim identity. Yeah. yeah. And so there were things like that. There was the only thing, it was a redacted document, but the only thing that they pointed out that was like an explicit show of support for something that, you know, like extremism or whatever was that they said that he tweeted support for the Mujahideen. But that was the only thing. And everything else was just like, this is just like being Muslim online. So, so basically, there are these companies that are doing this based on just like publicly available information, and they're deciding what, like, they're trying to decipher and determine what all of those signals mean to them. And it's based mm -hmm. on who knows what. It's like a black box, right? Like, where they're not giving us any of that information. So, yeah, like, you don't need a warrant. And it's so filtered through the bias of the person who's looking at yeah. that information. Whereas all of this surveillance, you know, quote unquote AI, like you said, it's <laughs> always presented as being very neutral right. and unbiased. And, you know, because it's a computer, like, it's yeah. the technology. We don't have any control, which is so fake and yeah. false. Yeah. Like facial recognition, for example, can't detect, like properly detect black people. So it's mm -hmm. like nothing is neutral if the people who are inputting the data 
well, one, are humans, right? Like, you can't, like, be a neutral human. But two, yeah, like, the data really matters. Who you're training that software on and what you're training it on and what... It's not just the data. It's like, okay, so posts about Islam is going to, like, mark this, like, flag this, like, profile, right? Like, it's like, even if the data, you tested it all on the same data, those inputs that are, like, determining, like, what it means is, like, it's decided by a human being. Right. Exactly. So... That's a good segue into my next question, which is that like, and I know you weren't reporting at this time because you were really young, but <laughs> because you were ten, <laughs> yeah. Um, I Late mean, starter. who knows? You could have been an, in- an intrepid child reporter. I don't want to, you know, know, throw you under the bus here, but yeah, I did know that I wanted to be a journalist at that age, though. <laughs> Was that because of 9-11 or just that's what you wanted? That's what I wanted to do. I talked a lot. I asked a lot of questions. Seemed cool. Loved Barbara Walters. My uncle was a journalist. There's a lot of random things. That's amazing. (laughs) That is amazing. So so at this time, you were like baby journalist, uh, Johanna (laughs) Buya. But at the time, you know, even though we, some of us who were a bit older and we kind of remember what happened, we experienced it. But Many of us still don't understand the full scale of the law enforcement surveillance of Muslims post 9-11. Do you know kind of what it was like back then and and whether it's ever become less or if it's just slowly been increasing as we have, you know, more technology um, and that we've given these companies more access to our information in the 20 years since then um and and the lists you know like for example like things like the muslim registry mm-hmm. that had you know our dad's names on them and things like that like has any of that gone away or is it just slowly increasing over time yeah i think it's what's definitely happened over time is that there are just like so many more ways that they surveil you i think the the way the the old school informant playbook um which is something that like you know was around since like Cointelpro, right? Like it was like something that was was around like during the era of the Black Panthers. And it was something that was used mm-hmm. against um, Black Muslims back then. But it was vastly expanded um, after 9-11. And, and it was expanded and basically refined to um, target Muslim communities. And so this past week, the Supreme Court um, was presented with a case um, of the informant who infiltrated California masjids. Um, and he like posed as a convert. I think eventually he basically like came forward and was like, I was um, sent here by the FBI. And that was that was the classic playbook where it's like often they would find someone who like was in trouble with the law in some way, shape or form. And then they would ask them to go to a masjid, pose as a convert, and then either try to like see if other people would like approach them with, you know, offers of radicalization or... <laughs> in some cases, like, be the one who, like, offers up that radicalization or, like, tries to, like, say, like, we should do X, Y, or Z. Mm. And that was a classic playbook. And it's not, it's something that, um, based on conversations I've had with people who are in the legal space around this, um, it's something that continues to happen. But it also happens probably as much in real life as it does now online, right? Like, like I just said, there's this active persona, like this fake profile mechanism, right? And one thing that they said that they were going to be able to do is um, access WhatsApp groups using this fake persona mechanism. Mm-hmm. And so there is like a possibility, I don't have like evidence of this, but people in the legal space have told me that there have been instances of uh, law enforcement joining or infiltrating different WhatsApp groups and Facebook groups and stuff like that. And so there, it's kind of like the digital version of being like an informant. Um, so I think the other thing that's happened is that Muslims are no longer the only target. Like the FBI put, or the DOJ put out their um, priorities and like the biggest threats to America. I think they put this out like every year or so. Um, and one of the things that they put out, of course, is like, some level of like foreign terrorism, right? Like that's a big threat. The other thing that they said was domestic terrorism is a really big threat. And this is, I think, like more focused on like white nationalism and white supremacy. The third thing that they said was a threat was something called black identity. I have four fingers up. Third thing um, (laughs) was um, something called black identity extremism. Which is like, what does that mean? It's like literally like the yeah. definition reads Racial like... Racial justice activists, <laughs> basically. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. I remember when this came out. So ridiculous. Yeah, it's extremely ridiculous. And so what happened is that a lot of the surveillance strategies and tactics that were first introduced or at least first refined 
um, and tested on Muslims post 9-11 has now been expanded and uh, scaled out to like target a lot of other marginalized groups, uh, particularly black identity extremists, like like people who are <laughs> fighting often against police injustice, often for black lives and for civil liberties. And, that, and like that, that's kind of where we are right now. So it's like, I don't think based on my conversations with people about um, surveillance on Muslims, I don't think it's gotten like it's it's gone away. But I do think they're now doing it to a bunch more people um, at the level and at the scale that they were doing it to Muslims. And so, yeah, I mean, in New York in particular, uh, post 9-11, there was, they basically tapped into all of the cameras all over the city. Um, and it was like a very, very jarring when finally through public records, we were able to see all of the locations that they had cameras that they had tapped into because it was all of the places that my family spent time in. And it was just like, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of knew, you know, growing up, we literally were like, there's mm-hmm. a van outside of our house all the time. Like we were pretty sure that they were just like watching us, like, you know, on the phone, we'd be like, oh, I hear a click. I would like jokingly be like, hi, yes. like my police officer, you know, things like that. So like, there's a part of us that kind of knew it, but to like have it verified to that level of like, oh yeah, that that grocery store that we always go to is being watched. You know, it, it, it was extremely, extremely jarring. You know, it's funny we say that because um, with all of the people we've been having these conversations with so far, we are all having this moment of like talking about the telephone calls and the clicks. And we all kind of laugh because we know that it happened, but there's a temptation 20 years later to kind of laugh it off as if it didn't really happen and maybe we made it up. And especially because if you ever mentioned it outside of your Muslim circles, you know, you couldn't. Because they were just like, you're making this up. You know, the government wouldn't do that. Like, They'd call you that's paranoid. That's not what happens. Yeah. Exactly. Not just paranoid, but like all of those other words, uh, which are not coming to mind right now. You know, in the Conspiracy vein of... Theorist? Oh, yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like your tinfoil hat. And you're like, but no, it actually was for real. Especially for those of us who were more active in the Islamic uh, activism sphere. Like, yeah. particularly if you had parents who were involved in the masjid, or if you were in any way involved in sort of purveying uh, Islamic things, whether that's ideas or, you know, um, service or goods or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Or if you or were if your a student were activist. By the FBI, yes, exactly. You know, and, on you a know. random work day, you know. <laughs> yeah. Hi, here, I know all this stuff about you. Answer my question. Yeah. Oh, this reminds me of a story that I forgot to tell last time, if you would like me to tell it. <laughs> um, so I have mentioned that. Um, I I work in an Islamic bookshop. So back in 2005, I was working in uh, an Islamic bookshop as well. And I remember this was after the London bombings. I'm quite sure that it was around that time. Mm. So between 2005, 2006. And we would regularly get, you know, visits from um, like law enforcement and they would, you know, they'd be friendly. They'd come around and they'd be like, you know, are you selling these illegal books? And every time they'd have a new proscribed list of books that you are not allowed to sell. Wait. And there was actually... There yes, were illegal on. books? Oh, yeah. There are lots of illegal books. <laughs> that sounds so Orwellian. Nuts. Yeah, like I've, I had no idea. Well, our our state governments are right right now, like are banning books right. all over America <laughs> because they're about racism. Yeah. So, I mean, it's True. not... Yeah. <laughs> So there was a particular edition of a particular text, which I'm not going to name because, you know, it's too much trouble. The actual original text of that book is not, as far as I know, prescribed, but there was one particular edition of it that was widely in circulation in around that sort of 2005-2006 period Mm -hmm. that had an extra text in it, which was a kind of a classical Arabic text about the J word, which I still don't feel comfortable saying. So mm-hmm. here we go. It's the J word. <laughs> and so, yeah, we had one of these police visits um, after, a, I don't know what happened. They were always coming around. And they were like, you know, here's your new list of books that we hope you're not selling. Can you take a look at it and make sure that you're not selling any of them? So you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, we're not selling any of these. And then they whipped out an invoice and they were like, but here we have evidence of you having oh bought these God. books. I'm telling you, they had Holy. fabricated that invoice. 
And I knew that because I was handling those orders with that publishing company. And I knew, like, we knew before it was proscribed that we would not be allowed to sell that book. So we were like, we're not doing this anymore. It was a completely fabricated invoice. And they, like, to my face, brazenly, they were telling me that here's an invoice you know, from them to you of an order that you've made. And I was like, we did not make this order and I can prove it to you. And I was like, this company hasn't even been in contact with us for like six months or whatever it was. Yeah. They quietly put it away and went off. That's really wild. I'm like, what just happened? And I've never forgotten that. And it's been like, what, 15 years? Yeah. So that's my story. (laughs) Well, you should definitely not forget that. It's like you, you hear these, you hear people are always suspicious or like you hear like kind of like urban legends that like something like that has happened, but to like have it confirmed Mm -hmm. for you, that's extremely, extremely like unnerving. Mm -hmm. So like before we end, given, you know, how closely you've been reporting on this and sort of observing, as you said, like, you know, you'll report on something and then you'll kind of see the ripple effects from that later on, which is amazing, mashallah. Do you think that there is hope of de-escalating the reach of surveillance? Like at this point, the way that things are um, and given that there is more awareness now about it, or is it kind of like it's already gone too far and there's a limit to what we can do? Yeah, it's so funny. I ask this question of like every like advocacy and activist group that I talk to. And the answer for the most part that I get from them, even the ones who are like extremely like they're like abolitionist groups and it's, you know, they're like constantly railing against law enforcement. There is a sense of optimism that like as someone who reports on it, like it doesn't feel realistic, but um, they really do believe that with the right amount of advocacy and the right amount of like pushing and organizing there is a a potential for us to regulate or ban or force um, entities to stop using different surveillance tactics i think there is like more of a move i think with facial recognition as i mentioned there is like regulatory moves unfortunately lawmakers are like old and like they also don't really know a ton about tech and like tech just moves way Mm -hmm. faster than um government officials do and then they of course have like the you know contradicting interests of like wanting to protect civilians but also they are part of the government and the government wants to surveil people for law enforcement purposes right like so there's all of these warring factions another thing is that like tech companies you know big and small are vying for all of these government and law enforcement contracts because like so many of them have sort of monopolized every other industry and this is like the industry of growth like this is like where you want to go and try to like work if you want to get like a really lucrative contract or a revenue stream um you know google for example right like why does google keep proposing and working on government and pentagon contracts right like it's even if their employees are freaking out about it and like you know protesting it and stuff like that it's because Google needs to grow. The problem that you face when you're a company that big is that there are only so few places that you can go to to actually grow. And one of them right right now is government contracts. And so you have all of these factors that play into just like the increase of surveillance, like people who are so super willing to provide those tools and people who are like so hungry to get those tools. But what's also happening is like that advocacy is actually like, you know, making a dent in it to some degree. Like the story that we I published last week, um, one sort of like subplot of it was that there are all of these predictive policing companies who like based on your behavior or crime history or social media, like supposedly are able to determine whether or not you're going to commit a crime in the future. They actually had like sort of I mean, it's it's not great that they're doing this, but they're also like a lot of them are starting to shift their messaging away from predictive policing and toward police accountability and transparency and community policing and using all of these words that um, organizers and reformers like that, that these were their demands right like transparency and community policing and accountability and whatever and police are basic not police but sometimes police but some a lot of these companies are basically utilizing those words to kind of rebrand their service without really changing much about their service and so while the end result is not great 
Um, what it does show, though, is that they're under pressure from advocacy and activist mm. groups. Um, you know, I got a hold of emails for that story between like people at certain companies and um, academics. And they were like, yeah, like we, you know, predictive policing is getting vilified. We have to like change our name or whatever. So it's like they're conscious of it. They're aware of it. And it's actually making some sort of an impact on the way that they do business or and or their bottom line. So. This is all to say, like, I really don't know. Like, it doesn't feel, I'm not, like, super, super hopeful. But what does give me hope is the fact that a lot of these advocacy groups at the, on the front lines who are doing the work, like, they would not be doing what they were doing if they didn't think that it would have some sort of an impact. And so maybe, like, is my answer. Inshallah. 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 Well, I mean, we appreciate the optimism for sure because it's, uh, it's you know, we've been talking about some some rough stuff. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for kind of leaving us on a more positive note. Yeah. I think if people doing the work are po- optimistic, then we, like, for at least their sake, should be optimistic too. <laughs> that is very Forced true. Optimism. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and it's, something that all of us have a responsibility to um, sort of push for. We can't leave it to, you know, just Mm. the amazing people who are at the forefront, like you and advocacy groups. We also need to, you know, as regular people who use this technology and whose data is being, you know, like just the awareness that this is happening Mm. will hopefully make more people sort of take an active stand um, and, and push back against all of this. Yeah. I will say, you know, part of my goal when I'm writing about surveillance is to like, put into like really plain words what surveillance is doing to people so that readers can understand and have a better idea of like how, you know, for example, all of their information that they're putting in Google can be easily requested by law enforcement and then handed completely over. And that like lacks approach to our own personal data being like, yeah, who cares, right? Like it actually really detrimentally impacts people. And so while I don't think that like it's all up to us, it's not like a personal, it's not on the shoulders of each individual and it is really regulation and it is really like people being more ethical uh, about the types of technology that they're building. It is also, it is helpful for people, individuals like you and I to understand and, and, and at least, mm-hmm. you know, help ask for better regulations around our own user information because even if it doesn't impact us today, which like the three of us, it 100% does, but like even if you, yeah. you know, even if it doesn't, it really does hurt a lot of other people. And one day it could be you. Like as the white supremacists are now realizing, right? Like January 6th insurrectionists are like, oh, now we're being surveilled. Um, But yeah, one day it could be you. And so, you know. Like if nothing else motivates you, that should, right? Right, yeah, yeah, very true. Very well said. And now with every appreciation of the irony I'm going to ask you where people can find you on social media. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. So like literally my life is a contradiction. I'm like, please be careful about your personal information. But like, I'm going to tweet about my niece and nephew. Um, you can find me on Twitter at jmbouya, B-O-O-Y-A-H. And you also have a website, right? I do. It's just johannabouya.com. Bouya is spelled the way that it's supposed to be spelled, B-H-U-I-Y-A-N. Perfect. And where can people find us, Lita? <laughs> they can find us on Twitter also at MIPSPOD, M-I-P-S-P-O-D. And you can email us with your your 9-11 stories. We're still asking for those. Or your post-9-11 stories or your reflections on any of the episodes. Or your surveillance and the, and the stories. <laughs> yes, your surveillance stories. <laughs> we would love to too. hear those. And you can also <laughs> you can also send those to Johan. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take them too. <laughs> You can email us at musliminplainsight at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to the podcast through your podcast app of choice or by going to musliminplainsight.com. Johanna, jazakallah khair. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom and knowledge and stories and dad truths. Dad truths is the sort of recurring theme of our podcast right now. Dad truths? (laughs) It really is. Dads just always know everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll come back. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It was so, so much fun. I, like this was probably the most fun I've had on a podcast in a while. So thank you. That's wonderful to hear. It was 100% our pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Salam. Right. Salam. Salam.